Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to another edition of Life Behind Bars. I'm Noah Rothbaum, the Daily Beast half full editor joining me as always is my colleague and co-host david wondrich how are you dave i'm doing well yourself i am doing well i, I can't believe i've been doing this podcast remotely for uh, a year instead of sitting across from each other we are sitting across from each other via computer screens it's much less amusing this way i will say it is yeah. true. It is true that it is it's not quite as fun as the first 50 or 60 episodes or 70 episodes that we did. Um, but uh, Wait, we've know, done I, that many? Well, this is, I think this is actually episode 80. So uh, thank you all of our loyal listeners who've uh, made the journey with us through all the years and through all the different topics and bartenders and bars. We appreciate you listening. We started last year kind of at the beginning of the pandemic, like many people kind of looking back to uh, the 1918 uh, influenza outbreak and uh, the last major pandemic and, you know, how that affected people and, and how that affected bars and bartenders and drinking. And we have a couple of interesting episodes from a year ago about the history of things like rock and rye and and other pandemic uh, cocktails and, and yeah, medicinal drinks and, exactly. and all that kind of stuff. You know, it only seems fitting now that fingers crossed, uh, knock on wood, that we're, we're kind of on uh, hopefully the other side now coming out of this pandemic with people getting vaccinated. And I mean, there's a lot of talk about what went on after the 1918, you know, influenza outbreak kind of finished in 1920 or, or at least sort of began to finish in 1920 since it sort of lingered on but but how that kind of you know helped create the the roaring 20s there's a whole anticipation of uh people going ape you know yes and uh, and, and uh and a new roaring 20s and you know I, i'm definitely here for it but uh <laughs> a lot of what when it comes to what what, what we cover a lot of the uh, the talk about the 20s and prohibition and drinking during prohibition is, uh, I hate to use the term, but it's utter horseshit. Yeah. Fake news. Fake <laughs> news. Mean, fake news. There are a lot of myths. There's the myth that I keep hearing, even to this day, that all the classic cocktails we drink date to prohibition. And that's not true. Absolutely. I mean, that's often one of these things where you do interviews or you talk to people and they always say, oh, like th this, this is prohibition cocktails, right? And you're like, not technically, <laughs> actually, uh, pre-prohibition would have been the golden age, not prohibition. I've got this, this article that Esquire magazine published in 1948, where they photographed 37 of the most popular drinks of, of the day, right? And uh, almost all of them are drinks that we still recognize today right. as classics. And this is sort of the canon of mixed drinks that have come down to us. 
And I just went over it. And you've got like the zombie, the planters punch, Tom and Jerry, gin, Ricky, mint juleps, Singapore sling, pink ladies, daiquiris, uh, clover clubs, uh, all the, all these drinks that we recognize today, sidecar, Rob Roy out of these 37 drinks, only five were invented during prohibition. I, I can't even believe it was that many drinks that were that were invented during prohibition. I mean, usually we talk about just one or two, you know. When I mean during prohibition, I just you know, I just mean during the age. Yeah. Because a lot of these were foreign drinks. Right. During or after prohibition, only the zombie, the between the sheets, the white lady, the sidecar, the Frisco cocktail. You know, yeah. that's not a lot. No. Everything else that we think of as prohibition drinks was actually before prohibition. One of the great factors for this is that the Great Gatsby, obviously the F. Scott Fitzgerald book, comes out, you know, in April of 1925, right? I mean, right, you know, we're about five years into prohibition, we're about five years after uh, a Spanish flu is over. You know, World War One is obviously ends in, in, in 1918 at the end of 1918. So the Great Gatsby had such an effect, you know, on people and readers and such a like enduring popularity oh, yeah. that I think it's really in many ways colored, you know, our view of what prohibition was like, you know, in the roaring 20s. And that's just one slice of what was going on during prohibition. That was just, you know, one aspect. Right. Everybody wasn't partying and, and lavish you know, mansions on Long Island <laughs> drinking, you know, French champagne. But that's sort of come to represent the whole of Prohibition, I feel like. Butterfield 8. Right. If you've ever read that, John O'Hara, party girl on the Upper East Side, or and, and her, her kind of sordid but very racy life and, uh, you know, in the speakeasies of New York. That stuff really, you know, it, it, it impressed a generation. It impressed a lot of people, uh, who weren't living in the cities that had lots of speakeasies and they were sure that everybody in the, in these big cities was just going ape, which, you know, some people were to be, right. odd, to be honest, sure. but uh, people still work jobs. You know, several decades of really, you know, calamitous events. I mean, prohibition movement really begins to pick up, you know, steam in the late 1800s, right. Where we see some States right. start to implement some kind of prohibition laws Certainly after the turn of the century, some states go dry and, and, and they stay dry for decades. World War One, you know, and then the Spanish flu, which, again, I mean, we spoke about this a year ago, but I, I don't think, you know, modern historians really give the Spanish flu the due that it deserves, the, the recognition of for changing people's right. behavior. Um, up until recently, we didn't really talk about it, you know, and its influence, you know, was it was mentioned, it was sort of a side note, but obviously it was a deadly virus that, that took many people's lives and really shaped the world, um, you know, just as just as we see the, the coronavirus shaping ours. Yeah, I mean, I think we didn't understand it until uh, we're, we started going through it. And partly because they didn't really talk about it at the time. Because, you know, when we say the war ended in 1918, it didn't actually end then. It was an armistice. It was a, a ceasefire. And nobody knew exactly if it was going to like start up or what was going to happen in 1919. Right. So it was still wartime. And at the height of the, of the Spanish flu, because it was still wartime, the press was told to really downplay it. 
you know, because that was giving information to the enemy. Right. By the time uh, people could talk about it, it was over and nobody wanted to talk about it. They weren't howling at the time. They were howling, but it just wasn't being covered. Yeah. And the flu itself also kind of drags on too. Like officially it's over yeah. in 1920, but it, it kind of keeps coming back, you know, uh, you know, popping up with hot zones, you know, for a couple of years. So, and then of course in America, you have prohibition starts like right after this. So it's these three major events, you know, sort of back to back to back that shape our world. And in the process, we kind of lose everything that we know about cocktails and spirits, because by the time Prohibition's over, it's 1933. Bars and bartenders haven't been able to function normally for decades at this point. So people kind of have to relearn what they are and what real cocktails are. And you see it in advertising. And, you know, you recently wrote a story about a fascinating pamphlet that Brown Foreman put out in 1934, um, which is a great story that Dave wrote uh, a couple of weeks ago for Half Full. If you haven't read it, you should about uh, Prince Martin amazing bartender prince martin louisville but you know the book at the beginning is basically the purpose of it is to tell people like what good cocktails are to like reteach them about cocktails after prohibition yeah there's nothing fancy in there you know these are all simple drinks yeah it's like this is what good whiskey tastes like this is what good cocktails taste like and that's all because of prohibition and and we lost all of this and people were drinking all types of things during Prohibition. Yeah, there are some myths about what people were drinking during Prohibition besides just cocktails. Dueling myths that uh, you, you and I were discussing <laughs> uh, and you pointed out that some people today like talk about how all the cocktails were great. And no, they weren't. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of just really simple rock gut stuff mixed with ginger ale. Ginger ale sales went through the roof during Prohibition. They just kept soaring and soaring and soaring because it was an easy mixer. At the same time, there's also the myth that all the booze was crap. Right. And that's not true either. Right. You know, there was a lot of stuff being imported. That's kind of the hard thing. The truth is somewhere in between those two different things, right? Where it's, you know, I remember talking to Gary Regan about this years ago, our uh, friend and colleague. And he was like, look, you, you're drinking in a speakeasy. You, you're not going to linger over a drink for hours, you know, taking your time. You're going to take your shot yeah. and you're going to leave before the police kick down the door and arrest everybody. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, you know, that was one view of, you know, that clearly that was his fantasy or the type of prohibition speakeasy yeah. gas would be drinking it would be you know some clandestine you know uh, subterranean you know bar but you know at on the other end you know you have these amazing private clubs and oh, i mean bars and just there was like the carousel club in new york that had a uh, a merry-go-round like the carousel bar at the hotel montleone in in new orleans still does and you sat at the merry-go-round and uh, some of the best jazz musicians in new york used to uh, play a novelty act there where they played on like ukuleles and kazoos and uh, the drummer beat on a suitcase wrapped with brown paper with drumsticks and the rich patrons used to pay the drummer to sit in on the on the suitcase and he made a ton of money by letting people beat on the suitcase that's amazing that's <laughs> and, amazing you know it, and that was just like upper class hijinks right uh, so so there was that for me like the perfect metaphor for what prohibition was was like in terms of drinking anyway 
was uh, th this uh, speakeasy owner, Joe, the Marquis Madden, who'd been a sailor and a boxer. He gave his formula for whiskey. He took equal parts grain alcohol, pure grain alcohol, water, and straight bonded rye whiskey and mixed the three. Right. And then added uh, a little bit of caramel coloring. And what you ended up with was something that's one third you know, whiskey, it's the same, a little under 50% uh, ABV between the water and the grain alcohol. And, uh, you know, it's it's like a blended whiskey. Right. It's okay. Yeah. It's not terrible. I've made it, I've made his formula for, uh, you know, for, for events and lectures on prohibition. And, and, you know, people say, all right, I can drink that. Right. It's not amazing, but it's not horrible either, you know? <laughs> 'Cause it turns out the government was, you know, putting out poisonous spirits to, you know, kind of teach people a lesson, right? To 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 scare them about yeah, yeah, speakeasies. Yeah. That was a, that was actually going on, which only came out in the last twenty years, I think. But you know, people were, you know, bottling and drinking all types of stuff that was horrible, you know, you know, that would blind them, yeah. or kill them and all types of things. You know, all I mean, there are all types of alcohol, but only some of them are potable or enjoyable to drink and obviously during prohibition right. they were all being bottled as um potable but then you have you know you you still have a lot of booze coming from europe going through canada and other places coming in you know from the caribbean you know being smuggled in you know yep. a boon of, of rum and tequila coming in from mexico you've got you know, whiskey being made in mexico too coming over the border right i mean it's you yeah, know a lot American of market. exactly and you know a lot of the definitions that we have today and geographic you know restrictions that only bourbon can be america could be made in america obviously didn't exist during prohibition so you, you know you see sometimes these amazing bottles you know yeah. mexican made bourbon you know from this period and it's you know it's this weird thing where you know you also have medicinal whiskey being sold i mean it's this giant business like it wasn't legal to make or ship alcohol right the volstead act forbid that but there was a loophole for medicinal you know whiskey where because doctors and you know dentists would prescribe alcohol you know for a range of different ailments and uh, you know it was a real thing doc i got a pain <laughs> <laughs> but obviously during prohibition that was you know i would say you know exploited that loophole and you you know you get a huge amount of alcohol flowing through pharmacies right in these these pint-sized bottles being sold mm -hmm. and it turns the pharmacies makes them a ton of money right it makes these pharmacy chains very wealthy and powerful and you know they they go through so much of this this whiskey that there's a distiller's holiday is declared right where distilleries can actually make whiskey because they're running out of stocks that you know that they can bottle as medicinal whiskey so i mean there are only a few a few of these distilleries but you know some of them were pretty big brands old overhaul yeah, was one absolutely yeah <laughs> well given their connections to the federal government there was a it was a melon who was yeah well yeah. sure so i imagine he was the who owned 
who owned it and he was like what the secretary uh, of the treasury or something the like treasury, I right so yeah, yeah. it helps to know something oh for sure I, they they were more licenses than than were actually awarded from what i remember so that like it, it you know they didn't even award all of them but you know and you see these amazing um in my book the art of american whiskey we, there's a photo um from a, a pharmacy in Sparks, Nevada for four roses. And basically, you know, it's like any other, you know, kind of medicine, like there's directions on how it should be, you know, ingested. And essentially like the recipe is like a hot toddy, which is kind of amazing, you know, that the pharmacist has written out yeah, yeah. on the label. Yeah. But this goes back to your original point. I mean, it's nobody is sitting there making, you know, uh, you know, fancy drink, you know, you know, at the pharmacy, you know, you're being given like, a little flask of essentially of whiskey to be drunk, you know, at home. It could only be sold in pints. Right. I remember one year for my birthday, uh, the late and much lamented Gaz Regan uh, gave me a pint uh, in a can. See, they were oh, yeah. tamper-proof metal cans, the glass inside. Uh, eventually, you know, finally they figured out that's how to do it. We were sitting at a table with a bunch of people, uh, uh, you know, at a, at a restaurant somewhere. So I just, used the uh, can opener that came with it and opened the can and we opened it up and passed it around and we all had a big healthy swig and uh, it was <laughs> and killed the pint. But uh, I wish they had made bigger bottles. I'll tell you that yeah. much. <laughs> it is interesting too, because the effects of prohibition are long lasting because it's obviously 13 full years, right? So a lot of the whiskey that you see yeah. being consumed even after prohibition is over is 17 year old whiskey, right? And well, it's, yeah, it's too old, like we talked about recently. In our conversation with Lou Bryson uh, a few weeks ago, and I came across a story from uh, Life magazine back in the day where they had gone to the original Pappy Van Winkle's house for the Derby, like right in this period. And what they said is that he's using 17-year-old whiskey for his mint julep. <laughs> right and that's like the whiskey to use and like now obviously people go crazy trying to hunt down a bottle of the you know the older pappy you know uh, whiskeys but here you know right after prohibition he's using it for his mint julep i imagine because the whiskey at that point is so woody and you know so old that it, it yeah that's all he know, had you know it's all he had and it's a great way to like you know mellow it out is by adding sugar mint and some crushed ice which waters it down but it, it i you know i almost spit out my coffee when i'm reading the story that you know here he is <laughs> that this is his chosen you know method to uh of, of, of drinking his whiskey and making his julep but i mean drinkers back then were no fools a lot of that 17 year old whiskey just languished you know nobody wanted it uh, right. after repeal you know because it had been sitting there in bonded warehouses since before prohibition and it was just woody as like licking the bottom of a drawer i've had some <laughs> of that stuff and it's not it's not good right <laughs> it's you know also the, the, stage, the barrels that they used were green so it's kind of piney and uh, it just really doesn't even taste like modern whiskey some of this stuff some of it is very good but some of it is really not so good yeah it's it's funny you know another one of those uh, myths uh, that that kind of does come out of prohibition you know older about older whiskey absolutely another myth that that you hear a lot is uh that because prohibition shut down american bars American bartenders had to all go abroad and they taught the rest of the world how to mix drinks. Well, some bartenders went abroad. Harry Craddock did 
who was, it turns out, not American. He was English. He had come to America, and then he went back. But uh, the world already knew about American drinks and already had learned to mix them starting in the 1850s and really picking up steam in the 1880s, 1890s. And it was already a done deal. There were already cocktail bars. Uh, the the uh, Chiro's chain uh, in Monte Carlo and then was in Paris and London and then uh, Berlin. Uh, then after Prohibition in Los Angeles, uh, they were all over the place, uh, even in New York. Uh, these guys all knew everything about fancy drinks and uh, American style drinks going back to uh, around 1890. They didn't need old American bartenders to teach them anything. Some of these bartenders did go down to Cuba for sure because American companies owned the hotels down there. So they just switched their personnel from New York to Cuba, something like that. But there were already Cuban bartenders who knew perfectly well how to mix drinks, you know, highly exaggerated and all from an American point of view. And if you look at things from other points of view, you see, well, it's really maybe a little less uh, of the Americans coming and showing everybody how it's done during prohibition. and people had already figured it out a long time ago. That kind of blows my mind. I mean, because we always sort of think about it as all the good bartenders left America. And I imagine, you know, a lot of them did not have to really leave America because a lot of their, you know, fancy clubs and restaurants like the 21 Club stayed open during Prohibition. So they didn't, they didn't actually have to go anywhere. And if anything, they're probably making more money here than they would have made <laughs> in Europe. You could still serve drinks in private clubs. <laughs> right. So the people who passed the law made sure that they could still drink. Where have we heard this kind of uh, work before? You know, it was just the little people who couldn't get drinks. But in a private club, uh, you know, you were still allowed to possess liquor. You couldn't manufacture it or, or sell it. But if you, a private citizen, uh, brought liquor, uh, you weren't allowed to transport it. But if you'd stored it at the private club, uh, you were allowed to drink it. And so that was sort of the loophole they used. That didn't stop clubs from being raided. Like the Pendennis Club was raided in 1930 and Martin Cuneo, the head bartender, was fined. And But, but everybody in Louisville patted him on the back and said, good work, son. <laughs> you know? And he's, he still kept his job, which was tending bar. Uh, Prince Martin, uh, you know, our guy that, uh, that, that I wrote the column about, uh, he worked at the Wednesday Club and he tended bar, he catered, he did everything there. Uh, and that started in 1922, which, you know, prohibition was, was 1919 till 1933. So uh, that's during prohibition. Lots of other uh, bartenders, you know, kept their jobs uh, at private clubs. They were put on as like maintenance men or something like that. They were kept on or waiters, uh, but they were in fact bartenders. Too funny. It's, everything's always more complicated, you know? Yeah, I mean, it also explains kind of the Roaring Twenties and that there obviously there were good drinks in some of these places because, you know, top bartenders continue yeah. to work there. They, I mean, there's also kind of the myth, the old fashioned that like people were muddling fruit in their old fashions to obscure, you know, bad liquor, you know, and that's why the recipe changed. But like it was already changing in 1916, you know, they were already putting fruit in it and there was no prohibition then. Yeah, I mean, at least not a national one. But yeah, I mean, it's not, it doesn't sort of hold water because at the places where you could spend the time to muddle fruit in a drink, they weren't getting raided and the booze yeah. that they were using was probably 
good Canadian whiskey or scotch or other stuff, Irish whiskey, you know, maybe. Um, but definitely, you know, they were using real whiskey. And in the places where you would yeah. have the rot gut, where it might taste kind of funky, nobody is standing there muddling drinks for you. <laughs> you know, you're, no, you hope you get a... Right. You hope you get a clean glass and a slug of, you know, ginger ale and, and some of their, uh, yeah. you know, whatever mystery alcohol is. I mean, that's so it's one, again, one of these things that were forever you'd hear over and over again. Oh, yeah. They, you know, they threw in the fruit to cover up the, the taste of bad alcohol or cocktails were created during prohibition because the booze was so bad. And that's why they had to be creative with their mixers. And it's, I mean, it, it sounds plausible, right? I mean, now, at first blush, yeah. it, it, it seems to make sense, but it it doesn't really, you know, hold up that, that they would be doing this during prohibition. So many of these myths uh, come out of that is like, it's people's dim memories of what happened either during prohibition or before prohibition. Uh, plus, it stands to reason common sense. And it's not a lot of like looking, actually uh, looking back on that because there hasn't been very much accurate history right. on that's pro-alcohol, put it that right. way. Right. There's a lot of sociological work that's very anti-alcohol uh, looking at alcohol as a problem. And once you start looking at it as a problem, you don't really care about like what actually happened, you know? Right. You're kind of just, saying that that stuff isn't that important. That's not the most important right. part. I mean, one of the other myths that uh, is always interesting, and I, I always believed this, is that it was speakeasies that brought women into bars in America. And uh, it does, it, it, to a certain extent, that is true. And that's a big part of the Roaring Twenties was that there were women in bars. What that misses, though, is that that was already happening before prohibition. That was already a trend in places like New York and San Francisco. There were already bars for women. There were cocktail mm. bars for women. Right. There were mixed bars. There were all kinds of dance palaces where men and women could meet and drink together. Those are the kind of speakeasies that people think of are the ones where there was music and uh, men and women drinking together. And that all goes back to pre-prohibition. It was already the trend. That was already the cutting edge. And that just, it just didn't stop during prohibition. It wasn't an invention of prohibition. Well, I think that, you know, you look at the Hemingway bar in Paris, you know, at the Ritz. And I think if memory serves me correctly, we were both on a panel years ago at Tales of the Cocktail about the head bartender there. Yeah, Frank Meyer. Frank Meyer, you know, what's now called the Hemingway bar, because obviously Ernest Hemingway liked it from what I remember, was originally the bar for women. It was a smaller bar in the back yeah. of the hotel and that Hemingway and some of the other regulars liked drinking with women at the bar that was traditionally reserved for women. And then ultimately it lost that designation that it was for women because I guess so many men were drinking there. So, I mean, again, you're right. There's all this interesting history, you know, before Prohibition. and Even like the Cuban bars were, were uh, integrated and, and those were always very popular. Yeah. You know, many men were perfectly fine uh, having women where they were drinking. These things are always more complicated. And the other thing that we didn't talk about is also, I mean, the, the kind of fourth major event is, is the depression, right? I mean, that is a huge thing that affects yeah. America and yeah. the world. And I mean, I think partially gives rise to people drinking at home, right? I mean, where a lot of people traditionally make cocktails at home, they didn't have cocktail shakers, right? I think you know, Noah. I'm hoping it works this way. We start backwards 
with the depression and the making drinks at home right now, you know, in 2021, we're starting at the end and hopefully we can go back the other way towards great economic times and everybody uh, partying off the chain for the next decade. Yes. Uh, and you know, we've already done, we've already done the economic crash and the uh and 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 the and everybody's sitting around at home drinking. Let's consider that part as red and go back to the other part right. where we're all in bars together uh <laughs> men and women uh, with live music and uh drinking uh, simple drinks with ginger ale or uh or or even nice cocktails made with uh, hopefully decent booze and just having a really good time. Uh, that that's the part I want. Skip over the depression, skip over the, you know, the, yeah, the, the, done the that part. prohibition, you know, I think that's been done. My hope in a few months, you know, we'll be doing episodes about our favorite bars reopening and, and with any luck, you know, talking to bartenders about what it's like to uh, reopen and what people want to drink now that this is all over. I cannot wait for that to happen. I'm looking forward to actually recording these episodes with you, Dave, in, in the same room, having a cocktail fully vaccinated. Yeah, or maybe a, a glass of some nice American whiskey or yes. or uh, scotch. I love Or all. <laughs> Sign me up for all of it right now. Um, whatever you want, I'm buying, Dave. It's on me. So uh, we'll bust out the good stuff for this. So cheers. Cheers. Dave and I encourage you to drink responsibly always. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.